afternoon where you are. Uh, if you're not in Perth, you should be happy because it's been pretty stormy and unpleasant here in the last 24 hours. I'll just introduce myself. My name's Imelda Wheelahan. I work at University of Western Australia as the Dean at the Graduate Research School. I've been here about a, a year now and I have what I think is the best job in the university and I have the best job this evening because I'm opening and closing this event and then I get to listen to the panellists. So uh, at the Graduate Research School we have over 2,000 PhD students at the university and they're part of this huge research engine that produces some world-leading knowledge and we have a fantastic vibrant atmosphere, we have researchers who are at the cutting edge and their research not only informs articles, communications but also our high quality teaching at the university. So we're a research intensive university and it's great to be able to share the, the perspectives of some of our leading scholars with you this evening. So at a time of crisis, we often hear fake news, but we look to our scholars and our experts to provide incisive and informed advice. We want to understand the bigger picture and we know that in the, this current crisis, it's not just the medical sciences, the epidemiologists that can give us guidance, but there is a purpose for academics from a number of disciplines to talk to us and help us understand. So the theme of the webinar tonight is particularly apt, of course, physically distant, socially connected, and it allows us to draw upon a wealth of knowledge and expertise we have here at the University of Western Australia. And I'm excited to hear the thoughts of our three panelists, but I'm going to leave the introductions to those experts to our moderator, who is Sam Illingworth. Sam Illingworth is joining us from the UK, but he is a senior lecturer in science communication here at the University of Western Australia. So he leads our science communication programs for undergraduates and postgraduates, as well as having his own research expertise in interdisciplinary studies. Now, uh, one of Sam's specialisms is giving voice to uh, scientists and non-scientists and enabling that dialogue to take place. So who better to moderate this session this evening than Sam? Over to you. Thank you so much, Imelda, for that warm welcome. And uh, hello, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. I'm delighted to be joined by an esteemed panel of experts, and it's going to be a really fun and engaging panel. Just to let you know what's going to happen is I'm going to introduce the panel over the next five minutes. Then we're going to go into a panel discussion where we've got some pre-prepared questions. There's going to be uh, the opportunity for you to take part in a couple of polls as we go through. And then what I'd also invite all of the participants of this webinar to do are to um, ask questions using the question and answer function at the bottom. And then in around half an hour's time, what we'll be doing is we'll be answering those questions. So we're really making space for all of you to get involved so we can hear all of your voices, all of your experiences and basically work towards that as we go through. So I'm just going to introduce uh, on the three panellists now. So I'd like to begin by introducing uh, Professor Joanna Badcock. Now, uh, Joe is a psychological scientist and fellow of the Association for Psychologi Psychological Science. She's also the research director of the Perth Voices Clinic and deputy chair of the board of the Australian initiative Ending Loneliness Together. She's passionate about psychology of science and is valuing everyday life. And Joe believes the diverse skills of academic and professional psychologists 
are essential to tackling global, local and individual human problems and building stronger, more socially connected communities. So hello, Joe. Uh, I'd now like to introduce our second panelist, uh, Dr. Michael Rosenberg. Uh, so Michael has 20 years experience in community-based health and exercise research. He has a broad range of research interests focused around public health epidemiology and health promotion, uh, health program evolution, uh, evaluation, children's psych physical activity measurement and improvement, and the use of integrative technologies to measure and improve human health. And Michael is also uh, the head of school at the UWA Faculty of Science and the School of Human Sciences. So hello, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. And then finally, uh, our third candidate is um, Douglas McFarlane or Doug. And Doug is a final year PhD candidate in the School of Psychological Sciences. His re research focuses on health related misinformation, particularly why consumers fall for fraudulent health claims and how best to protect them. His work is motivated by the need to reduce demand for products made from endangered animals, especially products claimed to have miracle health benefits, such as rhino horn, tiger bone or bear bile. And he recently spent 18 months at Cambridge University working on summarizing the evidence for effective consumer focused interventions. So we've got a real, real broad range of expertise in the panel. Uh, we've got psychological experts, we've got health experts, and we've got conspiracy theory experts. And in between all of those, we're gonna have a great discussion. So we're gonna start off with the first question. And this um, first question is going to be addressed to all panelists. And um, the first question that I'd like to basically ask everybody is, what is the biggest challenge that has affected your field of research during COVID-19? And I'm going to start with Joe, but I'll just introduce the question first with my own field of research. So my own field of research is in the geosciences and geoscience communication. And I think the biggest challenge that's affected my field of research during COVID-19 is around the idea of misinformation and also trust in scientists. And this is something that needs to be carefully addressed and talked about both in the current situation and a post-COVID-19 world as well. So hopefully that's something we'll come on to talk about later on. So Joe, I'd just like to begin by directing that question to you. What is the biggest challenge that has affected your field of research? Again, maybe outlining briefly what your field of research is yeah. during COVID-19. Thanks, Sam. It is a great question. And my field of research is mental health, with a particular emphasis these days on the role of loneliness as a factor that often contributes to poor mental health. So one of the biggest challenges that we've been facing is the lack of data. So if you think about what's been happening over the last few months, we've seen an awful lot of data about the virus, about rates of transmission, about um, the number of deaths that have occurred and also the numbers of recovered. We have seen um, the hotspots in geographical areas, and we've also seen data that's contributed to our understanding of how the virus affects vulnerable groups. Now, all of that has been consistent, large-scale data that is helping to direct where services need to go. But for mental health and for loneliness, we don't have that kind of large-scale, consistent data collection happening. And that leaves a real gap in our knowledge about who might be affected most and where we might need to intervene most. And that's particularly important because we're already seeing in individual services spikes in requests for help for problems with anxiety and depression, for example. But we're not in a strong position now 
to allow modelling for what might be facing us in the future in the area of mental health and loneliness in particular. So that's something we're trying to work with. And just before, quickly before I go on to Michael and ask the same question, Joe, do you think this is like a wider issue around like qualitative versus quantitative data? Do you think this is maybe why there's this issue that's going on here? Um, it's a fairly difficult point to address. I think there is a need for consistent data capture quantitatively across the country. That's what we really need. It's about harnessing the, the separate ports of data collection that are happening in a more consistent way. Okay, that's great. Thanks so much, Joe. So, Michael, I'd just like to direct the same question to you now, please. So, briefly, maybe your field of research, what it is, and then how that's um, the biggest challenge that's affected that field of research during COVID-19, please. Thanks, Sam, and welcome, everyone. My field of research broadly is um, physical activity in populations, um, and that it comprises of measuring people in free living environments. It comprises of intervening, trying to actually put in place um, programs to help people maintain physical activity. And it also looks at policy and practice, trying to influence the type of things that we're able to do. So across the spectrum of those things, COVID has really interrupted our ability um, to make measurement. As Joe said, everyone is trying to get measurement now, but those results are really hard to capture and use straight away. And particularly in physical activity where we can ask people what they do, but actually we really need to measure them physically and getting close is clearly not possible. Policies and interventions have really changed. We're struggling and moving online with interventions, but there's a lot of catching up in terms of the evidence about what's effective in that realm and how do you translate what you were doing in one way into another way of um, delivering those services. And finally, things that we thought were ready for policy change in January um, are completely now on hold and we don't know what post-COVID is going to be like. So where priorities around physical activity and community health fall in organisations trying to get back up and running, uh, we don't really know. So Sam, across the board, a pretty impactful period. Thanks, Michael. And I think this is definitely something we're going to be visiting back again with Joe as well. You know, just this idea of that we mustn't forget all of the other mental and physical health issues that are going on alongside COVID-19 and the policy implications that come from that as well. Thanks very much, Michael. Um, so, Doug, I'm just going to uh, direct the same question to you again. So uh, maybe if you could briefly summarise your field of research and then what the biggest challenge that's facing um, that field of research during COVID-19, please. Thanks, Sam. Uh, g'day, everyone. Um, so my field of research is cognitive psychology or um, experimental psychology. I look at a lot of the underlying psychological drivers behind what makes uh, health misinformation compelling. And then I look at interventions and try and test them to see if we can protect people to make them more robust to um, health in misinformation. So if I can squeeze two in really quickly, Sam, because mine, my point is actually the same as yours, is, is that actually... The, the biggest challenge is, is just this massive explosion in COVID-19 related misinformation that we're currently seeing. So whilst I think disinformation volumes have steadily been growing um, with the onset of social media, I think that a great deal of effort of that effort is pivoted to focus on this one issue because um, coronavirus is a global phenomenon. And, and there's so much uncertainty around this novel virus that the volume and the sophistication of disinformation 
is, is really crippling many countries' ability to tackle with the pandemic. So, so misinformation would be my first one. And my second one is just more um, on, a, on a personal level. Um, for me, it's the uncertainty around um, funding in the university sector. So mm. I'll be finishing my PhD in October and looking for to secure funding to continue to work on solutions to this information. And, and that uncertainty is, is obviously a huge challenge um, for research in general, but personally for me as well. That's great. Thanks so much, Doug. And absolutely, I think monitoring the higher education sector, both in Australia and across the rest of the world, is going to be so important going forward, especially the importance that the higher education sector has in contributing towards developing mitigation strategies to dealing with COVID-19 as well. So for the rest of the um, panel discussion, that was a really nice introduction to everyone's research. Um, We're just going to basically roughly focus around talking to Joe, then talking to Michael, then talking to Doug. But what I'd really invite people to do is to continue asking questions using the Q&A section and uh, we'll revisit those towards the end um, in about 25 minutes time. So, Joe, we're just going to begin by focusing on um, your work and really looking at, you know, the mental health sides of COVID-19, which I think is something that is, you know, impressing in a lot of people's minds at the moment. And I just wanted to start off by just asking, um, you know, with the current social distancing restrictions, which obviously are slightly different in every different country. So maybe we could think about Australia as the initial focus point for that. Uh, what three things would you recommend that we can do to improve our mental health for both ourselves and for other people? So the three things that I had in mind for this particular presentation tonight are setting yourself some goals managing your loneliness and seeking help early. So I'll just quickly go through each of those. So managing your mental health can be really challenging at a time when there's so much change happening, which has clearly been going on now for a couple of months. The rules seem to change day by day, week by week. And during a time of crisis and change like that, you can often get a sense of a loss of control. And that drives a feeling of uncertainty and anxiety. And that's difficult to manage. So what we have to do is try and implement ways to combat that. So we can begin by setting some goals and some routines, and that can be as simple as trying to ensure that our sleep routines, our exercise routines, I'm sure that's the point that Michael will come back to, and that our meal times are similar to what we would have had previously. So we have some structure built into our day. But then we can go further and we can think about setting some goals about how we can help other people around us. And that can help to take away a focus that often happens during a time of crisis, which is we tend to get very self-focused on how things are happening to us. Now, that's really understandable but it can also be quite unhelpful. So by deliberately trying to set some goals around how can I help my neighbour, how can I help my family, my friends, it can just help to break that cycle of focusing just on yourself and your own fears and concerns. I think that's really good advice, Joe. Thank you. Um, We can also spend some time reflecting on our skills and abilities And so that might involve thinking a little bit and reflecting on what we might like to do better in the future. And that helps, again, to break away a focus from just what's happening now and how worrying the time is now. Because, as is often said, this too will pass. So it's quite a good idea to think a bit more about the future. 
And the final point in the setting goals is to give yourself some acceptance. Be kind, mm. be compassionate mm. both to yourself and to other people. Um, and all of that can help to have a calming influence. So that's the, the sort of setting some goals and bringing some structure to your daily life so that you feel a little bit more in control. And I'm going to switch over to my own particular area of interest, which is specifically about feelings of loneliness and managing those feelings of loneliness. So first of all, just a quick recap on what loneliness is. Loneliness is really about the quality of your relationships and less so about the quantity of your relationships. So we know that people can be lonely when they're living alone, but they can also be lonely even if they're living family or they have lots of online friends and so on. So I'm particularly talking about feelings of loneliness. Now why is it important to manage loneliness? Well that's because we now know there's a large body of evidence that shows that if you're feeling lonely most of the time or all of the time, it has a really big cascading negative effect on your physical health, on your mental health and on your sense of well-being. It also leads to poor work performance and poor school achievement. So it has this really diverse array of negative effects. So it's really important to not let get out of control. So how do we manage our loneliness? Well, one first step is simply to recognise and acknowledge that you may be feeling lonely. At the moment, people might be feeling lonely as a result of the social distancing measures for the first time, really, that, that that they're not normally, or wouldn't describe themselves normally, as someone who feels lonely, but all of a sudden, they're feeling lonely. Or it could be that actually even before COVID-19 began, you were already feeling lonely. So first and foremost, acknowledge and recognise that you might be feeling lonely, and that's the first step to achieving change. You then need to be aware that when you are feeling lonely, it changes how we interact with others. It can make you be more negative, more defensive, more hostile, and also less trusting of other people. And unfortunately, that can lead into a cycle where your relationships with other people get compromised, even though you really want to try and improve your relationships. So be very mindful of what grabs your attention and try to make sure that you um, divert your attention to the normal or positive things that are happening around you and not just negative things. Try to think also about broaden and build. That is, you can build on your existing relationships, nourish them so that they flourish, but you can also extend relationships. Think if there's someone new that you'd like to meet that could extend your social network. Finally, you can think about doing things that you enjoy, because we also know that positive emotions can help you to um, feel more positive about the future and can help to change your perspective on the world. And all of those things together can be a starting base for managing your feelings of loneliness. And then the final thing is to seek help early. Mm. And that's really important because we know that at the moment, with all the changes that are going on, it'd be understandable to feel a little anxious, a little stressed, a little bit worried. But if you're beginning to feel that those emotions are really getting on top of you, getting the better of you, then it's very much uh, in your interest 
for you to get help earlier in the process mm. rather than leaving those things to become overwhelmed. That's so there's right. lots of online resources. Mm. We'll be able to, in fact, distribute some of those resources at the end of today's session. And make sure that you do get information and resources from reputable sources. Um, so that, that would be the final tip, is about seeking help early so that you can um, make changes to your life. Thanks, Joe. That's so helpful. And I think what would be really useful now is we've maybe launched a poll for all of the attendees um, to, to look at. So I'm going to launch a poll now, which basically is maybe thinking about one of the emotions that's become quite predominant in COVID-19 and that can contribute towards our mental anxiety, but also our loneliness as well. And that is fear. Um, so I'm just going to launch a, a poll. Um, uh, and so all of the uh, participants should see this up on the screen. So will you have more fear about going out once restrictions are lifted? Yes or no? Just going to give you about 20 seconds for all of our participants to answer this. And then I'll share the results, Joe, and we could talk about that for a couple of um, minutes, maybe. And then we'll, we'll go on to maybe the physical aspects of um, physical health with Michael. I'm just going to give people another five seconds um, for this. And then just this is just to reiterate that at the end of this webinar, we'll, have, we'll record this webinar and all the attendees will distribute um, this through the alumni network. And in that pack, we'll also include some of the links that Joe's been talking about, how we can get individual help for these um, for dealing with our own mental anxiety and anguish and loneliness as well. So I'm just going to end that poll. Okay, so this is really interesting. There's like, uh, I'm going to share the results so you can see how interesting it is. Uh, but it's almost a 50-50 split, right? Uh, so will you have more fear about going out once restrictions are lifted? Uh, so 46% say yes and 54% say no. And I'm, I guess I'm right in thinking, Joe, um, that it's really important that we manage that fear and that we don't let it um, dominate our, um, our mental processes going forward. It's obviously sensible for us to have some level of concern about what's happening at the moment. I mean, most of us would not want to catch the virus and so on. So we do need to maintain some sense of um, alertness about that. But equally, we don't want to get to the point where the fear and concern captivates our attention and our focus all of the day. So in response to those sorts of possibilities, you need to try and think about things like, what have you done in the past that has helped you to face challenging situations? Maybe you can use some of the strategies that you've used previously in a challenging situation and apply them in the current circumstances. Of course, calling and talking to friends and family if they're available to try and share your concerns mm. um, and using that as a, as a positive and productive approach. If you're talking to friends who simply amplify your fears, that can obviously have a, a negative Absolutely. effect. So you want to steer away from that. Um, and also, again, as I said before, seek help early if you really think that um, things are getting a bit more out of control than you can manage. And for example, in circumstances like that, you can take a look online, go to the Australian Psychological Society, and there's there a find a psychologist service. Most psychologists at the moment are providing services via telehealth. And so that would be um, available to you as well. That's great. Thanks so much for that, Joe. That's been a really useful insight into, into mental health during COVID-19 and addressing loneliness as well. So I'm just going to turn to Michael now. Um, and Michael, you know, 
many countries are now in lockdown mode and you know children are learning from home which has meant that they've given up on their usual school sports program which for many children is often the only physical exercise that they might get in the day so what effects do you think this is going to have on children's health in the long term and just then how do you think we can mitigate this beyond COVID-19 as well? It's a great segue from Joe's presentation on isolation and mental health because there's such a strong relationship between physical activity and in particular sports clubs and recreation clubs and isolation. So it's a, it's a lovely segue to remind people that you know those two things go well. We're, we're focusing now on children and sport um, in schools and outside. I thought maybe it would be useful just to, to limit the talk to pre-primary and primary school children just so that we sort of have a boundary about what we're talking about. And because we've all lived through it, we should know that the early years are really crucial in development. And all that's happening at the moment is the evidence is just continually reinforcing how important um, those early years are. And so if you look at the early years, it's important also to remember that the natural state for children is movement, um, especially younger as they get older, they're naturally moving. Um, screens, however, seem to now be becoming an artificial state. Um, and in, at least in my house, it would be a catatonic state. So we've got this sort of new state and a natural state of children moving. So now that we've got children with lots of free time, unable to move at home, it's really unhealthy for everyone. Um, moving to online learning, removing school sports, having sports activities taken away, just it means less opportunities uh, for children to be active. And you know, parents with children at home, I'm sure have been feeling frustration um, of the children and the pent up anxiety. You know, some of us are happy that schools opened and our children also that they could get out and actually start to move. So to answer the question, you know, at first glance, it like, may not appear that just a few weeks or a few months of sort of being isolated uh, will have much of effect. But we do know from other evidence that children and structured play and structured activities and having a structured day is actually beneficial to creating healthy behaviours. And we know this from work that's done comparing weekdays and weekend days. And you should be able to match this up with your own experiences. Um, you know, having unstructured days for children is actually different than having structured days in terms of how they behave. We're increasing the number of unstructured play, um, unstructured days. And other studies look at what happens over the summer break. So what happens to kids over the summer break and then when they get back to school? And what often is found, um, there's evidence of, is that children um, over the summer break gain weight um, and when they come back. So there's this free time and this structured play component. And some of that weight is maintained. So even though we go back to structure, having unstructured days actually can have an effect. So this may not have a long-term effect, but there are clear indications that having breaks and having structured days can make a difference in terms of you know, what can happen over the longer term. And I think this would be a great time, Michael, just to launch the second poll, just to see basically whether the attendees, whether the lack of sport is affecting their child's physical health at the moment. So I've just launched that. And so you can continue talking. And keep talking over the that. That yeah, please do. Thank so, you. Because there's more, there's, there's more to movement than just actually burning up energy. Um, and so part of what we need to develop when we're young is we need to develop what we call fundamental movement skills. These are like running, jumping, hopping, throwing. They're the foundations of being able to uh, perform uh, sports later on and be involved in recreational activities. And if we miss developing those activities, 
then we don't like participating as much. And we like to do things we're good at. And so we find that if you're not good at those things, you, there's a chance that you'll drop out. The most crucial period of time is between year, three years of age and 11 years of age. And the interesting thing, well, I find it interesting anyway, about fundamental movement skills is they're not natural. You have to learn them. And the only way to learn them is to practice them. So while having kids out and suck at home, there is an opportunity and they're not engaged in sport at school and sport in clubs and other recreation, that they're missing out on that opportunity. There's an abundance of evidence for which we've seen a decline in fundamental movement skills over 20 years as part of that. So there is this risk that is there, but it's not all negative because the wonderful thing about kids is that they're really resistant and they're incredibly creative. So if you give them a chance and you can encourage them, they will actually find spaces and ways to actually engage in these type of activities. So while we have at the moment schools going back, but still sporting clubs and recreational opportunities, that other structure that's not open, we do need to keep an eye on the fact that there, there may be potential longer term damage, as I said, from the evidence that we can tell from um, children's unstructured play and the fact that they may not be developing um, and then they miss some crucial development and components. So there are opportunities, um, but there is a potential if we're not careful and we're not aware that we should still focus on these activities um, to, to be ready. You can see from the poll that I shared, it seems to be that already roughly half of the people with, with children are seeing that there maybe is already some physical um, difference in, in, can I, in how can it's affected. I respond to that, Sam, just very quickly, because of one, of the, one of the things that's, that is, is a worry in terms of this sector is that um, habits form uh, very quickly. And so one of the things that, that does sort of worry the sector is that as you take a break from this, if you don't get back into regular participation and you don't go back into club sport or you don't fall into those recreational activities, that we may not, we may see a, a group of kids who are just dropping out um, because of this gap. So my message would be to, to parents or people involved in kids sport to try and encourage as reasonably as possible not to forget that when it's possible uh, that we need to pick that habit up again. Thanks, Michael. I think that's really, really, really valuable um, advice as well. And I'm sure we'll return to some of these ideas in the question and answers at the end. Uh, so Doug, I'm just gonna uh, throw over to you now. And we're just going to start by um, asking um, a question around um, conspiracy theories. So in recent months, there's been a few conspiracy theories about COVID-19. Why do you think people tend to believe these theories and not the information that is being provided by the government or reliable sources? And as you're answering that question, I'm just going to throw up in a poll uh, about people's attitudes as well that we can revisit in a bit. Cool, great. Thanks, Sam. Um, so actually, I think there's two main parts to this question. Um, oh, the polls just jumped up. Um, basically, do people buy in um, to conspiracy theories? Is that's the first part? And if they do, why do they buy into it? So to answer the first part, I think that most people, especially in Australia, uh, tend to believe the official reports from governments and other reliable authoritative sources. Um, there are many reasons for that. And we have many checks and balances to ensure that, you know, we have very le low levels of corruption. Um, we have an in independent, um, strong and publicly funded media in the ABC. And, and I think they have done world-class reporting throughout this um, current pandemic, um, especially in debunking misinformation. Um, 
although outside of Australia, the levels of belief in conspiracy theories changes depending on what country you live and where in that country you believe. So if we take America, for example, um, there is research showing that people on both sides of the left and right political spectrum believe in conspiracies. Um, but there is research to suggest that conspiratorial beliefs um, seem to have taken a much greater hold um, to a greater extent amongst the conservative right. Um, and there's a great book um, called Enchanted America published two years ago, uh, explaining that for anyone who's interested. Um, but importantly, I think this has little to do with uh, people's intelligence or their education as there is you know, quite a lot of evidence showing that, well, some evidence at least, that more highly educated people are better at justifying their pre-existing worldviews and they're better at finding evidence to support their pre-existing positions. Um, and there's, there's a bunch of reasons in psychology for that that I won't go into. Um, but to some extent, I think the reason why the right has, the conservative right may be having greater buy-in into conspiracy theories probably has something to do with the political ideology that government has no place in interfering in people's lives, especially with the current um, pandemic and, and the responses to that. But I think the greatest factor is actually, it's a bit like a horse race is because there already is this um, buy-in and conspiratorial thinking um, that lots of people within that community are holding conspiratorial views. They're sharing them amongst themselves. And that echo chamber is actually creating more and more belief in conspiratorial type thinking. Um, so, so I think that's, um, very different environment to Australia at the moment. I think that's very, very fringe. A lot of conspiracy theories. Um, but to answer the second part of the question, which is, does why does anyone believe in conspiracy theories? Well, actually, I think there are so many reasons. Um, and I think actually it's firstly important to think of what is a conspiracy theory. Well, conspiratorial ideation is the tendency to believe that powerful groups of people are taking secretive action against the common good for their own benefit. Um, and so firstly, it's important to acknowledge that, look, real conspiracies do occur. And so often dismissing something outright as a conspiracy theory is a political weapon that is often used to deflect attention away from real scandals that do happen. Likewise, uh, conspiracy theories are also spread um, by politically motivated groups to undermine trust in opposing political positions or um, to murky the water around inconvenient truths. And we've seen a lot of that around climate change. Um, however, when it comes to the real fringe conspiracy theories, um, they tend to persist despite uh, the lack of positive evidence. So they thrive on um, disconfirming evidence, which is, you know, why was there no cameras at the time and why weren't the police called at this specific time? You know, you can point to the, the absence of evidence to imply that something sinister um, must be going on. Um, and often to make that work, that conspiracy work, it relies on a bunch of um, very unrealistic and secretive coordination um, in, a, in a big group of people. And that's where the conspiracies, when you really look at them, tend to fall apart. Uh, but basically, and, and I think this builds a lot on what Joe was talking about earlier, is at the moment we have um, a lot of uncertainty, especially at the beginning of this pandemic, and, and there still is a lot of uncertainty. And when there's a the vacuum of certainty, there's the feelings that um, things are a bit out of control. And so we know that conspiracy theories tend to spring up during pandemics um, because conspiracy theorists are rushing to fill um, the void of that lack of certainty and provide, you know, what they call insider information to make people feel as if, you know, they can explain current events and to make sense of things that are essentially going to be outside of their control. Um, and it's one of the reasons why it's so important that the government needs to consistently mm -hmm. be giving clear, um, honest and accurate communication so that there's no room for conspiracy theories. 
Absolutely, Doug. And, you know, just sharing the results there, it's, you know, probably hopefully quite heartening that conspiracy theories or interesting don't seem to have changed the attitude for the majority of the attendees of this. And absolutely, I think the point you raised about it's the attitudes towards conspiracy and intelligence aren't necessarily co-aligned with one another. And certainly in my own research and, you know, attitudes towards climate science is actually those people that have got a lot of information and a lot of intelligence that find it very difficult to change their entrenched beliefs on a particular issue. And actually, when we come to try and change those entrenched beliefs, we often just find ourselves further entrenched in said beliefs as well, which I think is really important. And just finally, before we, we go to the q and I think what's you talked there about the Australian government's attitude towards um, COVID-19. And have, have you heard of any examples um, of the Australian government's recently introduced COVID safe app causing fraudulent behaviour online, or does it seem to be behaving quite well at the moment? Yeah, certainly. So um, this is a little bit outside of my expertise, but I have heard of examples and I can touch a little bit on them. Um, so, so what I've learned about, about scams and about um, uh, fraud online is that if somebody knows what you want, then they can use that against you uh, to create a much more um, compelling and convincing scam. In this case, if I was a scammer and I was to predict that people wanted to download a tracking app and maybe there's a bit of ambiguity about how to do that, any ambiguity, um, or people are used to downloading apps from outside of the you know, Play Store or, or Apple, then there's, there's a lot of opportunities there for fraud. So I saw an article recently in Business Insider that reported uh, about an Android app called COVID-19 Tracker. Um, that was actually ransomware, which means that it, once you downloaded it, it was to capture your sensitive information on your phone um, about your social media accounts, as well as what was ever contained on your phone. And then it would threaten to uh, release that information to the public or delete the phone's information unless users paid um, $100 in Bitcoin. And, and I can tell you now, when you think that someone's got control of your phone and, and potentially that was a real threat, then that's a very extremely stressful situation and, and your emotions will potentially take over and you might not be thinking straight and you can end up losing quite a lot more than the hundred dollars by giving away your personal mm. details or your banking information, et cetera. So that, that was one example. But in terms of the Australian context, um, there were reports early on that a text message was being shared around social media and the text message was made to look as if someone had received a text message, had downloaded the app, then received a text message saying that the app had notified the government that they were more than 30 kilometres away from their own home and now wow. they were required to phone the government. So that's an actually very clever and manipulative plot mm. to actually spread misinformation about what the app, what the app actually does because we know that the government's tracker app doesn't actually record the location, your geolocation, only your proximity to, of your phone to other people. So the motivation behind that uh, disinformation seems to be to undermine the government's um, credibility and response and, and their plan to control the virus, which is, which is very frightening. Thanks very much for that, Doug. So uh, we've heard from all of the panellists now um, in their respective areas of expertise in terms of loneliness, in terms of physical exercise amongst young people and in terms of conspiracy theories. So now we've got um, about 15 minutes where we're just going to throw open questions to um, the participants and please use the Q&A box at the bottom of the screen to, answer, to ask some questions and then we're going to start answering them. So we've had loads of really good questions here. Um, so 
question here from uh, Chloe Le- Leopold, sorry, who's interested in what websites the panelists would recommend in terms of getting information that's reliable and trustworthy, especially around coping with stress, anxiety, and especially with like physical health as well. So Chloe, just to answer that question, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be distributing uh, with um, with the recording of this webinar in a few days time, some external links and resources that will that we will recommend, that our panellists will recommend as being great sources of trustworthy information. Because as Doug just touched on then, it's really important that we go to the official sites. And what I would recommend everybody to do is if anyone's ever unclear about something that the government is recommending them to do, to go to the government, Australian government's website. And it's actually pretty clear on there what's, what's required. So we've got a question here, um, Doug, for you, if that's okay. So this is from Jennifer Hall, and she's saying that um, I'm interested in what motivates either trust or distrust in scientific advice or information. Uh, So great, really great parallel here between COVID-19 advice compared to advice from IPC and others on climate change. So really, Doug, what your thoughts are on what motivates trust or distrust in scientific advice or information? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question and one that I'm probably not going to easily be able to address um, the entirety of it. But uh, there's lots going on with climate change as there is with um, COVID-19 misinformation. Um, But actually, I think one of the biggest predictors of trust in science is going to be where you get your information from. So as I talked about, um, certain conservative news outlets, more prominent ones, you know, sharing um, misinformation often or or, um, you know, that can lead a lot of people. And we know that Fox News is currently in a lot of trouble and people looking to sue over their understating of um, the seriousness of this pandemic early on. And that's something that even um, uh, one of the Murdochs admitted that they could be much tighter on the information that's coming across and the message that they're sending out. So I think, you know, where you're getting your information from, um, but that isn't just news outlets, it's also your communities and and we know that um, some of the most effective misinformation is being spread via social networks, but also private social networks. So I, for the first time ever, was getting a ton of mis- COVID-19 related misinformation through my WhatsApp chat. And I think that's passing a bunch of filters. So we're much more likely to trust in information um, that's claiming often, almost always, to be from someone who knows someone who's working on the front line, um, who's at a hospital or a researcher, and, you know, it's been vetted, it's very um, intuitive. And if it resonates with my worldviews about, you know, natural remedies or about this is actually, you know, a democratic hoax or whatever it is, then I'm much more likely to trust that, that information that's coming through my private social networks. So if similar kinds of things are happening in, in climate change and, and that trust. Um, again, as you said, it's not, it's not necessarily intelligence or... Um, um, education. It's more to do with your political worldview, your associations with mm. the people around you and the information that you're, that you're taking in and, and, you know, whether or not you're using some sort of confirmation bias or disconfirmation bias for any seek out information that you believe Absolutely. in or discard information that you don't believe in. So there's, there's lots more going on, but that's probably enough for now. Thanks, Doug. That's a, that's a really great answer though. So um, we've got a question here from Marion that I'm going to direct to Michael first and then to Joe. Uh, so Marion says that um, we live in the UK and still do not have any certainty about when will the school will be going back. So Michael, just wondering if there's any advice on how to help 
younger children um, really deal with uncertainty, like in terms of that, like in terms of a physical space, first of all, and then maybe going on to a mental space as well. Uh, so Michael, in terms of practical advice, really dealing with children in terms of making sure they get that physical activity that's needed. And then going on to Joe thinking about how we deal with children's mental anxiety around the issue. So Michael, please. Yes, Sam, thanks. Um, well, let me remind you that kids are creative and <laughs> they will make space. Some of the work we did a few years ago was to have a look at how people use their homes and Clover Maitland did some work looking at what we call the home space. And one of the interesting things we found in that study was that our homes are the most malleable um, environment that we have. And we can create lots of different um, environments within, those, within our homes. And in part, it has to do with the relationship between your attitude and your physical space. Now, there is a minimum space that you need, but actually we found that people are really good. So if you were someone who had an attitude that um, thought activity was really good, and that matched with your willingness to have your house um, invaded by children and balls, the evidence would be there. If you were into the arts or into the music, you would be that. So there are lots of ways in which you can deconstruct how you think your environment should be. So that's one thing. The second thing is there are actually really good resources online in terms of how you can use um, things that are in your house um, to structure playing. As I said, the, the target age group we're looking at, it's about practice. One of the things that's missing is an opportunity just to throw a ball or to be able to do things repetitively. And so there are resources available and we will post them and they're available free, um, which will give you ideas about the type of activities that you can do with children, that they games that they can play that they can keep you active. As I said, structure is important. So actually you can build structured programs. So there are lots of resources available and there's lots of resources in the UK and I'll make those available as well um, that are local that can help you think about different ways that you can structure. The advice is just, as I said, kids being pent up and not being able to move um, is, is not ideal. That's great. Thanks so much, Michael. And then Joe, I guess, you know, this idea that many people might think, oh, children are loving the fact they don't have to go to school, but actually that's not really the case. And a lot of children are facing quite large areas of mental anxiety and loneliness, really, because of the current situation. How would you suggest we might approach that um, subject with our children? Well, I think it's probably important to recognise that children really take their cues from the parents and the adults around them. And so you've really got to be mindful of how you're responding because they're going to be modelling and learning a lot about how to react from watching you. So that gives you some ideas about um, talking to children to explain why you might be feeling um, stressed or whether you might not be feeling yourself and that gives them room also if they're old enough to be able to talk about their thoughts their concerns their worries so that's that's one issue to bear in mind and I guess the other thing too with with younger children who may not be able to articulate more complex ideas Sometimes um, using art and an expression in other way and play and activity can also be useful ways of them expressing their um, pent-up emotions, but non-verbally. 
That's great. Thanks so much, Joe. So really, you know, listening to our to our children, working with them, working with their creativity and making sure that, you know, I think we're, we're, we're open and honest and that our cues are, are transparent for them to see as well. So, Doug, I've got a really great question for you here from Rob Blandford. Um, so Rob's basically saying that um, he's coming from a country where illegal pangolin trade has been an ongoing battle. And we know that one of the conspiracy theories or theories around COVID-19 involves a pangolin. Now, what Rob's saying here is that actually what might come out of the end of this is that as a result of the pangolin being seen as like the cause of COVID-19, as one of the conspiracy theories or one of the theories, it might ultimately result in the illegal trade of pangolins being stopped. So, I know that you do a lot of research as well around how, um, you know, the, 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 the use of certain uh, animal parts in, in, in consumption. And so I just wondered if you can comment maybe on that, but more generally around how some conspiracy theories can actually lead to issues being brought to light and positive change coming out as a, as a result of that. Yeah, thanks, Sam. And thanks, Rob. I think it's a fantastic um, question. It speaks to the heart of my interest in, in why I study the psychology of fraudulent health claims. And for everyone else to understand that pangolin, um, it's a delicacy in terms of its meat, but also it's used in traditional medicines for its scales. And it's supposedly one of the most poached animals in the world, although we don't have great evidence to support what's more or not poached. Um, in terms of its role in the current uh, pandemic, there is there is good reason to believe that it might have been an intermediate animal from 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 bats, and so I wouldn't call it necessarily conspiracy theory. I'd call it a plausible theory, but not enough evidence, and we might never know the true answer. Um, it's a really really good point whether something positive can come out of this. I think the spotlight on the wildlife trade is something that is very very positive. Um, there's a, this is something that I've been motivated to work on. That's what I was working on in Cambridge. I was working with groups in Oxford. There's lots of people trying to work on the illegal wildlife trade, but it's nothing compared to the size of the trade and the amount of effort that needs to be had. So this focus, this understanding that um, putting diverse wild species together in these conditions is actually a really high risk um, activity for breeding these kinds of, or allowing these kinds of transmi- transmissions from animals. Um, to jump into the human population, um, it's really positive to understand that there is a really real risk of that human activity. Um, so th- there are positives that could come out of a better managed wildlife industry or restricting much of the wildlife um, trade, but we don't necessarily want to drive it underground where those conditions get even worse and the pandemic just springs up and we have no mm-hmm. idea where it's happening. Um, there is there is a dark side again to that by you know reiterating that there's a link between you know wildlife and diseases and it's a paper that i was working on today we've got our second standard revisions now and it's about the backlash actually against bats because bats um we know that they are able to um deal with a lot of viruses so they're a suspected reservoir for the next you know um pandemic including this one they're a suspected reservoir doesn't mean that they were definitely the case but there's been backlash misguided i would say um, about wild bats when really the, the threat has come from human activities, for deforestation, wildlife trade, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the positive is that more people are going to take it more seriously and we can promote that message, but we have to do that in a very sensitive way to understand that we can manage those risks. Those risks are real and, and those risks aren't for the wildlife existing um, in natural, in a, in a healthy environment. 
So um, that's great. Thanks, Doug. So well, we're, we're, a lot to we're it, coming. Yeah. No, no, no. So we're coming to the end of the discussion now. And sorry, we weren't able to answer all of the questions. We had so many, uh, which was great. It's showing that people are really interested in the expertise in, in, in this that is at the University of Western Australia. So before I pass back over to um, Imelda, I'd just like to um, ask each of the panellists um, if they could just give us in a short 30 second snippet what one piece of advice they'd like to give um, to, our, um, to our participants watching today. So I'll start with Joe, please. Yep, sure. Um, so loneliness was a big problem in our community even before the pandemic began. We know the estimates suggest that one in four people in Australia were feeling often lonely. So loneliness spreads through our community actually by a lack of social connection and therefore it's likely to be exacerbated by the social distancing measures. So we're probably faced with a couple of options here. If we don't tackle loneliness in our community, then it's possible that we could be facing a social recession where loneliness gets worse and worse and worse. Alternatively, maybe we have an opportunity and that would be the version I'd like to go for. And that is that we have an opportunity to really start to get to grips with loneliness in our community. We're already talking about it as an issue that a lot of us are facing. And now we have an opportunity to really build on that and to invest in our social communities to make them stronger for the future. That's great. Thanks so much, Joe. And uh, Michael, from you, please, a final thought. Yeah, like Joe, the, the advice I would give people um, predated COVID in a sense, you know, my saying to this is, you know, there are, there are very few problems that can be solved by playing catch with your kid. Fundamental movement skills and getting kids moving is just that exact one that can be done. The COVID related additional advice is that ensuring and getting ready when there is an opportunity for your children to get back out playing and engaging with other kids and in sports um, is a really important long-term um, strategy that people should think about. Thanks, Michael. And then Doug, if you can wrap up in like 30 seconds, what your one piece of advice might be. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I think the confusion and turbulence currently unfolding in places like America and Brazil, to me, are our crystal ball into our own possible future if we let disinformation run rampant. Um, I think it will cripple our ability to deal with future pandemics as well as the host of problems that are to come with a changing climate. So my advice is to be vigilant and to hold those to account who are spreading distrust in our public institutions and seeking to undermine confidence in science in general, because if nothing else, those things are very critical to our security, our wealth and our quality of life. That's great. Thanks so much, Doug. So thank you to Joe. Thank you to Michael. And thank you to Doug. Thank you to all of you for your wonderful questions. Uh, I'm just going to pass back over to Imelda now. Um, and I'd just like to remind all of you that at the end of this webinar, there's going to be a feedback survey. If you could please um, complete that before you leave the event, that'd be fantastic. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Thank you. That was just an inspirational panel discussion. Thanks, Joe, Doug and Michael. And Sam, that was seamless moderation and timekeeping on your part and managing the questions that came in. Apologies to anyone who didn't get their questions answered. There was one I was keen in from my own personal viewpoint. What, what are, how are we going to be post the restrictions, post lockdown? The thing is, I don't think we'll ever be the same 
what we learned about was that we're all sharing an atmosphere of uncertainty, uh, anxiety, uh, worrying about misinformation, what advice to follow. Uh, we were reassured, I think, by both Joe and Michael that we should maintain good habits, you know, control the controllables, uh, keep those routines going, uh, to keep your kids active, um, play catch, play catch with your friends. Why, why leave it just to the kids, I say. I think we're all learning to be a bit playful. This is bringing out creativity. Some of the things that are being shared on social media, media some of the online groups, are showing that people are being creative and responding to that. But reach out to those in the community who perhaps are struggling. So um, there are challenges to facing our researchers, but we've got examples of, of three of our researchers here at the university who are using um, some of the issues confronting all of us to feed into their, their own research. But as Doug said, there's challenges ahead of us. There's challenges for those of us who can't go into our labs or get access to our usual materials, but also financial challenges for research in the higher education sector in the future. And those challenges are those we share with other groups and industries as well. So some good advice there from our three panelists to be thinking of. And what I felt, though I'm physically distanced from all of you, how great it was to feel socially connected and to just be a participant and an active listener in this fascinating discussion. So the links and resources that people were keen to, to get access to will follow this event. But I just want to, to thank you all for your participation in this event tonight and uh, to encourage you to take part in future research impact events if you've enjoyed this one. Do stay in touch and stay in touch with all that the research information that's coming out from the university. Thanks so much. Goodbye, good night, good afternoon, good morning. There may be less coffee catch-ups, hugs or high-fives, but we're still part of the global UWA community and have a role to play. The UWA alumni community is committed to helping all of our students, staff and graduates through the COVID-19 crisis. You can help by making a donation, send a message of support, become a mentor or ambassador, give pro bono advice or simply check in with a fellow graduate. Let's all do our part and help the global UWA community.